Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our event, When Retirement Savings Meets Economic Crisis, Lessons from COVID-19. I'm Ida Rademacher. I'm the Executive Director of the Aspen Institute Financial Security Program. And this event, uh, as many of you know, is part of a series we've been hosting to highlight the research, the knowledge, the policies, and the, and the leaders uh, that can uh, really help to triage the immediate economic shocks of COVID-19, design solutions that allow households uh, to recover and address the structural changes uh, and challenges uh, that we need to to stabilize financial security at the household level in the years to come. Uh, all of that's gonna contribute to an overall economic recovery in this country and, uh, and it's gonna take every one of us. So thanks for joining us today. The Aspen Institute Financial Security Program's work on retirement savings is made possible with the support from AARP, MetLife Foundation, JP Morgan Asset Management, and, the, and Prudential Financial. And, and retirement really is the foundational issue on which the entire financial security program was founded. Uh, in fact, it was the focus of the very last major in-person event we held before the world turned remote uh, in March, uh, the Aspen Forum, uh, Retirement Forum, the Aspen Leadership Forum on Retirement Savings. Uh, our event today focuses on uh, the retirement savings system uh, the, the, uh, in the United States, uh, the one we have and, and the one we need. And it also focuses on the ways that the pandemic has brought into sharper focus uh, the importance of savings as one of the key buffers against economic shocks. We talked a little bit about the emergency savings. Okay, we talked a lot about the emergency savings aspects of that last, uh, last week. Uh, but today we really want to dive into um, the, the formal retirement saving system in this country. And, and of course, not just for COVID, but also during because of the recent and welcome swell of outcry against racial injustice and inequity, that it's really brought several, I would say, big reveals to the forefront that I think can help us all begin to see the importance of building out a more robust and inclusive system for savings in America that helps with both short and long-term resilience and financial security, and that serves all people, especially those right now who are disproportionately left out of formal savings systems um, in black and brown communities. Uh, the financial security program focuses, as many of you know who've been joining us, on the whole spectrum of financial challenges facing U.S. households. And the series has brought together thousands of folks over the last two months uh, that spend time usually working on one or two specific pieces of that challenge, uh, challenge set. So for those of you joining us today who are usually focused on the day-to-day -day financial challenges of households, uh, I hope the discussion amongst our panel, which I'm going to introduce here in a minute, helps you begin to see retirement savings not as a not as a luxury item, but as a foundational part of what what we have and what we call full stack financial inclusion. Uh, certainly, we'll be able to examine this system as an example of a solution of, of a solution that can, with the kind of wow. modifications and new design features that we're going to talk about, actually serve to reduce wealth inequality and the racial wealth gap in this country instead of exacerbate it. Uh, so in addition to the discussion that we will get into right now, we'll be having Q&A at the end of the panel. So please submit your questions online. And uh, my colleague, Karen Andres, will be fielding them to me over time. We'll leave time for some Q&A. And you can also join the conversation on Twitter today by following at AspenFSP and using the hashtag AspenFSPLive. Uh, 
So now let me stop introducing the panel and actually welcome the panel. Uh, uh, in, uh, uh, first off, I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Nari Ree, who's the Director of the Retirement Security uh, Program at UC Berkeley Center for Labor and Research, uh, Research and Education. Hi, Nari. Hi. Uh, also, we have the Honorable Michael Ferrix, uh, who is the State Treasurer of Illinois. Uh, good to see you again, sir. Good to be back, Ida. Thanks very much. And uh, one person that is with us, and you'll hear his voice and you see his picture online, Dr. Carl Camden, founder and president of IPSI US, the Association of Independent Workers, uh, formerly the CEO of Kelly Services, a global Fortune 500 staffing company. Are you with us, uh, Carl? I am happily with you and enjoying contact with people. It's excellent. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, well, great. Well, let's go ahead and get into it. I'm not going to give bigger introductions because I, I want to leave uh, time for this conversation. We've actually never had all three of you in a conversation with each other, and your perspectives on this will, I think, help us uh, frame out a number of dimensions of the existing problem of retirement savings in this country and uh, some of the kinds of solutions that are out there uh, in the mix. So, so, Nari, why don't you start for us, if you don't mind, and what I'd love for you to do is just share a little bit. I know this is this, you have books about this. You have entire reports. The state of savings in America prior to COVID-19, uh, paying potential, potential, paying specific attention to um, uh, some of the disparities in terms of who had access to savings uh, in the workplace and who didn't, and specifically uh, for communities of color. Sure. Um, so I think one thing it's just important to start out with is um, the fact that we have a fragmented retirement savings system that's largely voluntary um, that that sort of has taken on more and more of the weight, right? So we have Social Security as a ba base layer of retirement income. That's a national social insurance system that has a, you know fairly broad coverage. Um, that's clearly not enough for most people to live on. And so what's been happening over the last really 20, 30 years is a shift in the retirement savings, retirement income burden to private households, um, partly because of the decline of defined benefit pensions in the private sector, um, and also because of things like um, uh, some, you know, increasing the normal retirement age in Social Security, right? That is essentially a benefit cut. Um, and also, you know, um, the average um, person is going to live longer. Right. And so you need more years of retirement. So all of those things have contributed to a, an increasing retirement savings burden. And by and large, um, American households have failed to keep up or have not been able to keep up. Um, and then within that voluntary system, because so much of the retirement savings system is contingent on voluntary employer offering of retirement savings plans, like 401ks or 403bs in the, in the public sector, um, that it's, it's basically layered with different forms of inequality. So um, the first thing to start off the bat is, you know, do you work for a large firm versus a small firm is going to be a huge driver of whether you even have access to a retirement, to a retirement savings plan. And then even among firms, um, you know, if you're a part-time employee, right, if you're a contingent worker, uh, you may not actually even get access to those benefits. So um, Roughly half of U.S. workers, private sector workers, don't have access to a workplace retirement plan. Um, and then that is further differentiated by, um, you know, whether you're low wage or high wage and also by race. So um, 
so Latino workers um, right now, I think I'm just gonna cite a state level statistic. In, in California, basically it's about a third of Latino workers who even have access to a plan. Um, and then African-American workers do a little bit better, um, especially because of, of public sector employment access. Um, but what it all translates to is that, um, that there are race and class inequalities, right? And firm size based inequalities and access to being able to save for retirement. Um, and how this shakes out at the end in terms of retirement wealth inequality and financial asset inequality is that, um, for instance, African-American health, um, black households who are nearing retirement um, have about a quarter of the retirement savings mm. of black households on average. Um, and it's even less if you look at Latino households. Um, and then again, that's also compounded in overall sort of inequalities and in net worth that we've seen. Um, and the other uh, piece that I wanna draw out is that, is that if you look at what's happened by generation, um, in terms of overall financial asset accumulation over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years, um, you know, normally within a generation you, ex you would expect inequality to broaden. So for instance, um, about uh, basically uh, a large majority of the assets um, that are owned by baby boomers is actually owned by the top 5%. And the, the amount of assets owned by the bottom 50% is pretty much negligible. So you'd expect to see, and that's gotten worse over time. Um, but what we're seeing is that we're seeing we're seeing millennial households actually reach the comparable levels of financial asset inequality, you know, 20 years earlier in their household economic life cycle. And so what that portends is that um, that given the way things are going, we're we're really headed towards you know um, really intensified wealth inequality, retirement inequality. Um, so I'll stop there. That's pretty much the picture really before COVID-19. Thanks. And, and just to, have, to kind of connect this back to a couple of our other um, series, you know, part, there are reasons for that generational um, growth and inequality. There's certainly student debt has got to be a piece of that. And the changing kind of co connection to, to labor markets. Are those kind of some of the key drivers in that dimension? Um, Yes. So because employment has become more precarious and, that, and that's become the fact whether, you know, you're a W-2 employee or whether you're an independent contractor, just um, work has become more precarious or less stable attachments mm -hmm. between employers and employees. And so that's had a negative impact on people's access to employer-sponsored benefits. Um, and also, you know, it's contributed to things like income volatility that make it hard for households to save. Right. Um, so it's it's interesting because we have a we have a DIY retirement savings system in a context where households um, are also, for instance, you know, facing 20 years at the bottom of um, stagnant real earnings. So it's just become harder and harder to find the means to save. Um, and at the same time, um, I think employer contributions to retirement have also been reduced over time. Yeah. So it, I, I think just um, whether so you're it's a perfect it, storm, it just it it's just the precarity translates to yeah. it translates to reduced opportunities to accumulate retirement savings. Yeah. Well, I want to um, I'm going to pivot this to you, Treasurer Frerichs, in a second. But one one final question that I think will help us make that bridge is um, everything you've been talking about is just what's been going on 
measurably, empirically measurably for a number of years. And now we're in the middle of this COVID crisis. And there's been a couple of things even in the CARES Act that allowed people with retirement savings to access them, even you know, uh, if they have them. But my, my sense is that part of what that creates in terms of the big reveal is even greater disparities between who has financial buffers uh, for resilience in this in now and who doesn't. So could you say, is there anything you want to say about kind of the the during, I wouldn't say post-COVID, I'd say in the midst of COVID, you know, what, what is looking different about um, uh, the retirement savings system? And it either could be on the employer side or on the uh, on the access side. I'm um, sorry, is this for me or? Uh, yeah, just for you. It's like a final piece because I know, yeah. I know. We can, no, we can, um, yeah, well, I think, well, I think, you know, I think we saw what happened in 2008 and we can expect, some, you know, what's happened to the financial market is a little bit different. Um, because right now we're dealing with a, a sort of collapse in employment, right, and the GDP. Um, but especially in terms of the impact on, um, old, well, first of all, workers of color were really the first laid off, right, as in that first wave of employment loss because of the, the kinds of sectors like um, like hospitality and restaurants that were being shut down. Um, and I think as we go forward, um, there's a big question mark about what happens to older workers because mm -hmm. there's been this expectation that that people work longer in order to accumulate right the, the higher social security benefits and have extra years to save and fewer years of retirement to fund. Um, and what happened after the 2008 collapse was that older workers um, who were already on the margins of the labor market really lost their toehold, right? Yeah. in the labor market and had a really hard time coming back. And the fallout for people who, you know, had any retirement savings was that first they dipped into the 401ks and then they claimed social security early, right, with a huge lifetime loss in monthly benefits. So I think, you know, I, I worry about that um, in terms of what's going to happen over the next year or two, um, if that's going to repeat itself. Yeah, we'll get into that. There's going to be next. We're going to take. We're going to skip a week after this week, and then the next one will be on the future of work. But there's going to be some strong linkages there, and I know that Carl's going to want to get in on that. But let me um, let me pivot to you, Treasurer Frericks. And one of the things I think that Nari didn't say, but that is part of the story of the 55 million or the half of half of workers who don't have access to a workplace plan, is that a lot of that's concentrated in smaller businesses. Um, and um, there was um, uh, interest at the federal level in uh, expanding and addressing some of these challenges to the retirement, the private sector retirement saving system. Um, but over the last few years, it's really been the states that have taken leadership in that space. So um, to the to kind of uh, the the, the pre-COVID problem of access, um, you all have really stepped in and played a role there. Would you say a little bit more about what you're doing? Um, what is this Illinois Secure Choice work and how does that fit into the role that you uh, you do in your day job? Great, thanks Ida. Uh, I know that you have a diverse audience here, uh, have different background, but let me try and hit some of the high points. Uh, Illinois Secure Choice is a state administered retirement program that helps individual workers save their own money for their own accounts. It's specifically made for workers who lack access to an employer-sponsored plan. So in Illinois, if you have an employer-sponsored plan at your workplace, Secure Choice is not for you. You can keep using that. It's important to know workers are automatically enrolled. In Illinois, we have a default contribution rate of 5% into an appropriate age-based target date fund. Uh, employees can increase or decrease that amount or opt out, but they are automatically enrolled. 
Um, these are put into Roth IRA accounts owned by the workers. And that's important because they're then portable from job to job. Employers play a role, but we've kept it a minimal role. They register, they upload their employee lists and facilitate payroll contributions. But unlike with an employer-sponsored plan, they don't pay any fees, they cannot contribute, and they aren't responsible for administering or reporting. That means they're not fiduciaries. We launched our program in the fall of 2018. It applies to every employer with 25 or more employees that don't have a qualified plan and that have been doing business in the state for at least two years. Uh, where we are today, today we have over 65,000 funded accounts with approximately $25 million in assets under management. That translates to about 5,500 employers that are already registered for the program. And we're looking to onboard thousands more over the coming months. The program makes it easy for workers to save. And that's I think why we're all on this call here today. It's simple for employers to facilitate. It utilizes key design features like auto enrollment with default options. And once again, it is portable. When you, um... There's there's a fascinating deeper story uh, about the process of even getting to the point where you could um, implement this this program uh, in Illinois, uh, and you're one of many states that have uh, taken taken leadership to to do this work. Um, and it's really look these programs are uh, so important, but they're still nascent. And then here comes um, a global pandemic. So um, you know there's questions about. Are, are people going to be able to save? Are they going to be needing this, these dollars? Have you seen anything during the pandemic, any early evidence of what behaviors are uh, with relation to these accounts and the plan overall? Well, we're very much aware that we're in unusual times. And so we've been tracking employer and employee behavior closely since the pandemic began to impact Illinois about mid-March. So the good news is we've not seen a huge increase in withdrawals. We did see a slight uptick in the last two weeks of March, mm -hmm. but since then we've flattened out and have even fewer withdrawals than we did during portions of January and February pre-COVID-19. So we think that's good news. Uh, there has been a reduction in total contributions in April and May. This is likely a sign of employers who had to temporarily close as well as those who may remain open, but either cut back on hours or cut back on the total number of employees working. Everyone knows and that uh, restaurants and, uh, and bars were closed down. Uh, a lot of those people in the hospitality industry were uh, working without any retirement savings before. And so they're part of Illinois Secure Choice. Mm -hmm. But good news, we're starting to see this number increase in June as more employers begin to reopen here in Illinois. Great. We've seen slower growth, but still increases in registered employers and number of funded accounts. That's good news, We're not going backwards, not going, growing as quickly as we'd like. But this year was initially supposed to be about onboarding thousands of Illinois employers who missed their registration deadline for the program. COVID has certainly stalled these efforts. However, we continue to see new employers enrolling and starting payroll contributions. Growth has been slower than previous months, but it's still positive. So even Great. though we didn't see major changes in savior behavior, the structure of Secure Choice is important to think about during this pandemic and economic crisis. With the Roth IRA option we default into, savers have access to their contributions penalty-free. 
All the dollars they put in, they can withdraw if they need them. Very early on, we shifted our messaging to make sure savers knew they had access to their dollars when and if they needed them. And I firmly believe workers who had a secure choice account were better off for it. While it's a retirement account, those dollars were readily available as emergency fund if needed. And we know that some did, but thankful a lot didn't take advantage. That's great news. It, it dovetails with so much of the research that's happening now that shows, I mean, a couple of things. One, a facilitated savings mechanism, whether it's for retirement or emergency, right? And especially with the design features you've put in, really, really drive uh, those defaults. And we also see on the flip side that just the, the access to savings, having some kind of a buffer uh, does uh, is creates such a measurable difference in people's ability to withstand some of the economic shocks. Of course, it's not it's not in lieu of, it's a complement to other kinds of safety nets. And I know that those two have been something that's been uh, deeply creating both pressure and need for leadership at the state level. So, you know, I know that even just to that end, knowing how many things are on your plate right now, uh, thank you for making time for this, this webinar today. Sure. Let's, I'm going to pull you back in, but I want to grab Carl and pull you into the conversation as well, because for those there, I'm kind of building this concentric circle of people are covered in the workplace under certain employers, and a lot of the larger employers, as we know, have have 401k plans and coverage. That next um, circle of smaller employers is, is a harder place to reach, and uh, states have come in, uh, in in those places. That's also where um, a great deal of uh, workers of color uh, um, are in the workplace. And then the, the third place where we really still don't have a full solution is around contingent workers and gig workers and independent workers in the economy. Uh, because in the U.S. we do have, uh, Carl, as you like to say often, um, a very interesting approach to um, providing benefits like health and, and uh, retirement, and that's uh, connected to the employer. So how about if you introduce yourself and uh, Ipsy and a little bit of the reason you exist in the world? Great, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> when I was the CEO of Kelly Services, we started tracking what was taking place with job life cycles uh, around the world, and in, particularly in uh, heavily industrialized countries and uh, and like the United States and parts of Europe, job life cycles were declining. The amount of time you could express, expect a given job to exist in a given locale with a given employer was steadily decreasing. And around the world, as Kelly was providing temporary employees, we saw an increasing use of independent workers uh, as the source for how companies were getting work done without a long-term commitment uh, to workers because, again, rapid change in product design, location, technology, and so on. And in fact, in the United States, uh, you had pre-COVID, you already had a third of the workforce making the majority of their income as non-employees. Uh, McKinsey and others all seeing that track nicely towards the 50% plus mark. And then with COVID coming, we actually expect that increase to, to pick up. In most other countries, it doesn't cause the same crisis in terms of benefit access and retirement planning like it does here in the United States, because in most countries, it's considered a right of citizenship to have access to 
benefits and to have access to post-work uh, income streams and so on. But here in the United States, uh, we picked a model that placed that burden heavily on an employer in a time when employment is on its way very soon to be in a minority work model in the country. And we've made almost no progress uh, towards establishing what the alternative mechanisms are going to be. Uh, so post leaving Kelly, we formed the Association of Independent Workers. Uh, we now have 15,000 and growing uh, independent workers in. We have been building portable benefit packages. So regardless of how and where uh, they choose to work, they have access. But always when we do surveys and look at other people's surveys of independent workers, and their top three concerns uh, is specific difficulty, large difficulty with access to appropriate retirement planning mechanisms, the education that corporations and businesses used to provide, not easily available, uh, the structure for retirements, much, you know, for uh, retirement savings, much more limited, and companies much less willing uh, to participate and helping them through the education process and the establishment <clears throat> and the establishment of uh, those programs. So retirement's one reason I was excited about being on this panel is that while we keep talking about it in terms of employee language, when we end up rapidly in a world in which if not the majority, uh, nearly as large as the employment world, a group of people who feel disenfranchised by the retirement savings model in this country, uh, that's a problem. And then to the, you know, to one of the additional issues, that burden tends to fall and that difficulty and lap of, lapse of access is much stronger, much greater uh, among uh, people who are economically deprived, among our uh, minorities inside the country have much less access. And so while we all trot out the examples of the successful and well-financed and well-supported by education uh, of uh, the engineers, the IT coders, and the research scientists. Uh, we're very, very concerned about what's happening to those who are in the rideshare programs, those who are providing warehouse work, those who are working in situations in which we know and we're seeing demonstrated by COVID response are the most fragile, the least enduring, the least likely to persevere uh, in times of crisis. And so coming out of COVID, uh, we're already seeing a significant increase in the rise of independent workers, but we are also seeing a significant decline to access to traditional employment uh, for those with less education or those who have been uh, at the lower end of the, you know, of the compensation paradigms. So working hard with, in terms of how do we go about providing that support, the education, the structure, and so on inside a country which doesn't make it a function of citizenship. Thanks for that. I'm seeing Nari nodding her head along and the same with Treasurer Frerix. Rather than pitch another question right now, I actually wonder if uh, you all wanna weigh in with each other, uh, comment a little bit on your own pieces of, uh, what you've talked about in terms of this stack of solutions right now that don't quite hang together as a 
as a full savings uh, system in the U.S. is, is one facet of benefits that, that Carl teed up. Mm -hmm. um, so there are just there were, there were a lot of things, but I'm gonna um, let me just pick out a couple of things. Um, I think one is that um, given the continuing role of employers, not just in retirement savings, but like all the facets of, of sort of um, economic security, social insurance, so you know, unemployment insurance, paid family leave, right? All of these benefits that are offered through the employment relationship um, that independent workers have a really hard time getting access to. So there's, you know, you have to, I, I think you have to approach it at two levels. One is really employment policy and labor policy. So as you know, in California and other states, there's been a move to classify platform workers as employees and to give them access to things like unemployment insurance um, and uh, other workplace benefits. So I think that's that's something that's, you know, that was an ongoing kind of political uh, debate, policy initiative, right, that this um, is happening in the context of, and I think COVID-19 has really intensified that, right, um, in a lot of ways. And then um, secondly, I think um, one of the challenges um, uh, addressing the needs of independent workers with portable benefits is um, scale and efficiency. So I happen to know just um, Ipsy and also uh, I work with a lot of labor organizations with domestic workers. Everybody's trying to figure out, right, how do we get nannies retirement benefits? How do we get them paid sick leave? Um, and one of the challenges in all of this is basically how to provide that in a way that's cost efficient right mm -hmm. and and it's truly portable because you have to have you know fairly large scale to be portable and i think that's that was one of the reasons why i was such a big fan of the secure choice type you know auto ira type initiatives um at the state level because it it has a potential to actually a potential to actually go there so i do think that the the crisis right now is making us you know as a society take a really hard look at all the different ways that we're vulnerable right in the labor market and financially um, and really, the, you know, what is the role of the public sector, right? Um, what, and I think we need to be asking really hard questions about um, what are our expectations about individuals, right? What, what, are, what are individual responsibilities in the system and what is the collective and public responsibility in the system? I love so, it. Yeah. Thank you. I, I think I'm gonna add to our lexicon, there's, we, we've all been be, become familiar with a certain kind of uh, PPP, right, with the payroll protection plan. But I'm going to throw out two other uh, PPP acronyms that I think relate to this conversation and this moment of reckoning of choice points in our society. You know, one is public-private partnerships, or in some cases, private-private partnerships. Uh, and the other is pooled purchasing power. Uh, and I think, uh, Treasurer Frerichs, to you, you know, I'm going to punt both of those to you because I think you've got a story in both places about how you could show up to help solve this problem. Yeah, they, they both fit with us because Illinois Secure Choice, uh, I, when we tried to pass this, we heard a lot of people saying this shouldn't be a government takeover. Uh, employers should be uh, the ones handling retirement security. And, and I would say I agree. Unfortunately, half of them do not. And with the changing nature of work, with more contract workers or gig workers, it's just not happening. So uh, for those who were worried about government taking over, uh, in Illinois, the, the rules would be, well, you messed up your own pension savings. Why should we trust you with ours? I would tell people, don't trust us with them. We have a private sector solution. But government can facilitate those economies of scale, of public pooling, 
which allow us to get a better rate, uh, lower fees than these individuals might get on their own for comparable services. And so I think the, the state of Illinois here benefits from both of those alternate PPPs you mentioned here. Uh, we work with the private sector. It's a good example of how a government can facilitate the private sector doing something and lower fees by bringing together the purchasing power of uh, 1 million new people here in the state who should have access to it. Thanks. And um, Carl, I want to bring you back into the as well, because I think one of the other choice points that Nari brings up is, um, I think this is a very, it's, it, it's one that we all really need to understand the implications of, but the idea of, um, you know, the employer role. And I think, you know, we have for the retirement system under ERISA, we have employer as fiduciary. Um, for um, many other ways of imagining employer role, it's increasingly people are thinking about it as distribution plan ch channel for workplace. And uh, so I just wonder what your own take is on this. And uh, was you, when you think about solving the problem for workers, um, you know, how do you help, help us think about the role of the employer or really what you teed up as, um, as something that is, 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 is quite unique to, I think, the U.S. and the U.K. systems? Yeah, an employer is a, is a problematic word because when you look at the independent workforce, and, and, and while we can talk about the California case and some of the, you know, the, the AB5 battle that took place there and elsewhere, but in general, for the majority of the independent workforce, they're in, they're in employment situations of one, and they don't have an employer. They're their own employer, and what they have often is a platform that helps them find the next opportunity. But for, you know, again, the tech, the scientists, the engineers, uh, and, and so on in particular, they're, they're not staying with any one provider long enough to trigger a co-employment situation. And then what's interesting, uh, given my background, you know, in the academic world as a psycholinguist and dealing with language, they never, ever, ever want to be referred to as an employee. So for this group of the better educated or more experienced and, and um, less, you know, um, and, and in a higher ability to charge for the rates, they don't have employers. The language, the conversation, the solutions that's based around an employer doesn't make sense. And in fact, when you hit their chat rooms, when you talk to them, when you bring them together collectively, they do want portability of benefits and Ipsy's sister organization, iWorker Innovations, does that. So you can get to portable benefits, not through an employer. But as we started, the individuals who are left out and find themselves in the more tenuous situations are those, again, uh, in, in minorities, lower education, uh, you know, access, uh, and lower and lower pay scales, and they find themselves um, not necessarily looking for an employer, but definitely looking for that, you know, that access to employment benefits. And in those cases, we talk about the platforms. What's the responsibility of the platforms to provide education, to help provide training, and to make them aware of the alternatives? 
I don't know if I answered every bit of the question you were looking for there. No, but. that's okay. I mean, I'll, I'll circle back with the PPP yeah, piece. And, well, oh, yeah, I'm go sorry. ahead, Treasurer. Sorry. Jump in. Treasurer Farrick is asking I, you a question. Yeah, I think, well, I don't a question, but I just want to add this relates to our program. We're hoping the portability of secure choice will be a benefit if workers end up moving from one employer to another as a result of changes to the labor market. Uh, in March of this year, we opened up the program to gig workers and self-employed just before everything started uh, collapsing. But we hope this can be a tool for those who want it. Mm -hmm. And you actually bring, well, in, when we were talking yesterday or when I was li listening in on the listening conversation you were having, yeah, profit. Uh, you know, there's, I, I do want to kind of circle up around this question of portability. For, for Carl and his population, it's an essential, right? This is a, it's a set of benefits that you said are tied to citizenship, uh, Carl, in, in, in your mindset, and that also um, any, any job is going to be stringing together multiple kinds of income streams. So portability and a singular point is going to be important. Um, when, we, when you talked yesterday, Treasurer Ferrix, we were talking about portability and uh, the incremental improvement that that happens because this is a state program, but the um, impediments because we actually don't have a federal solution to some of the solutions that you're trying to lead on right now. So I wonder if you might, um, I don't know, wax poetic about, you know, what you really hope happens in the next decade, um, and maybe even because of the implications of COVID, but like, do we accelerate the interest in the problems you're trying to solve back to the federal level at some point? And is that is that helpful to you? Or is that um, something you'd rather not see? Well, I think there are things. The portability. That, yeah, I think there are things we can control and the things that we hope happen. So in terms of things that we control, I think there's a lot that can be done to make plans more affordable. We've done what we can with secure choice, but for the private sector space, portability would hopefully ensure more continuous coverage and help avoid situations where folks just take their money out or lose track of it. Uh, at the state level, <clears throat> we've tried to create something to be very portable, but we realize that all Americans aren't tied to their state. They'll move out of their state. And I'd like to see something so there's greater portability around the country as people move. And that's gonna require a federal solution. If you ask me to wax poetic or to imagine or envision, uh, be careful what I say here, but I, I told people when we were passing this and I've said recently that quite frankly, I hope that Illinois Secure Choice goes away in the next decade. And not because I don't think it's a worthwhile program, but my hope that is it's replaced by an equally good or better federal program. I mean, that's really, I think, where this should be happening but supporters of retirement security have been trying for a federal solution for, well, I don't know how far you wanna go back, uh, 10, 20 years and probably probably longer, but there've been real efforts uh, for the last decade or more uh, that haven't really gone anywhere. And so uh, you know, even though I believe that's ideal, I believe that states can be laboratories of democracy and that states who can should step up, set up a system to help their citizens but also to provide an example for other states and for the federal government. So really what I hope is that we do such a good job and you see both employers and employees so happy with what Illinois Secure Choice is doing that other states are gonna follow our lead and when enough states follow our lead, I think eventually the federal government would step in. And so I'm happy to cede this program to them as long as they don't water it down and take away a lot of the important uh, factors that we have in Illinois Secure Choice. 
Nari, do you have an opinion on this as yourself? I know you've been working very hard with California on the, um, yeah, the CalSAVERS uh, program. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about like when this started. I first started working on retirement issues um, 10 years ago. <laughs> and um, and that was when, you know, Senator DeLeon in California was essentially saying the federal government is doing nothing. We really need to move forward in California. And it took quite some time to get everything off the ground. Um, I I think that I want to pivot back to the employer role a little bit in conjunction with this, um, because I do think this matters at the state level and at the, hopefully at the national level, which is uh, the role of government in setting standards, right? And that mandates actually play a role here. There's there's an employer mandate, right? Um, do one of the offer a retirement plan of your own, like a 401k or a pension, or participate in the state-sponsored, privately managed retirement savings plan, and um, I will tell you there was some debate about this in the labor community about is this something that we want and you know it's it's like the minimum wage can what is can the public sector play a role in setting standards um, because I do think that there's an employer role for you know recruitment and retention right um, that right there's a prompt here right by Illinois Secure Choice by Calif uh, the California CalSAVERS program which is the prompt to the employers is you have to do something. Right, and so you can you can sort of take the kind of the uh, sort of the easier route, which is a state-sponsored program, because you don't have to think about right. You just enroll your workers. You don't have to think about the rest of it. There's no fiduciary responsibility. Um, or do you want to you know contribute to your employee accounts? Do you want to offer a, a more robust empl um, uh, employee retirement benefit? And I think that that's actually really constructive, right? And so it's not necessarily about the state taking over the retirement system, but that you've created a regulatory environment in which employers have an incentive to do something and hopefully do something better than the minimum. Right, so you've created a yeah. new floor. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I was gonna say that, uh, yeah, I shouldn't have to have this job. We created a great incentive for employers, for um, plan providers. You know, with this mandate, they have to do something. And so when people said the private sector could do a much better job than you can, Treasurer, than the state of Illinois can with all your problems, I said, great, then go out and market to every employer out there. It took us a few years to set this program up. And in that few years, employers and plan providers knew this was coming. They could have easily gone to all of these employers and said, do you trust the state of Illinois to manage your employees' retirement? And I'm gonna guess the, majority, the answer of the majority of people would have been no. Well, then you have a choice. You can either sign up with that state program you don't trust, or you can sign up with me. What a great marketing tool. And do you know how many plan sponsors went out there and signed up new employers? I don't know of any. I'm sure a couple did, but that just proves my point. The state really did need to step in because there was a certain class of employers and a certain wage scale of employees that the private sector just doesn't want to handle. And that's okay. I don't view myself in competition. We're just picking up those who the private sector has left behind. Yeah, it, well, and it, I think this is um, this is a prime question for what kind of inflection point are we at as, in a, at a, as a country? Um, where are there market failures? Uh, where is there holes in the safety net? And is there a growing sense of the proactive role the government needs to help take to come in and help solve some of those problems? And I, and I say that knowing that you're actually also going to be up against 
extreme fiscal constraints in coming years, right? With both um, tax revenue from both households and, and businesses, you know, being hit by, by this work. Um, but I do wonder if it, it's a moment for, um, for changing perspe perspectives of what the, what the role of, of government is as a facilitator or standard setter or last resort um, uh, for the safety net uh, to be made whole. And I, I don't know if you've got a, an emerging sense of that yourself uh, across the range of programs that you look at, uh, Treasurer? Um, you know, I would say the state plans certainly um, play a role. We remove the fiduciary from the employer. That's important to a lot of them. But I also need to make clear, we don't have the same benefits as qualified plans. And so that means is the state can't just take over everything. I know there's some people express concerns about that. We have lower contribution limits. The state cannot match or the, or the employers cannot match an employee's contributions through our program. That being said, a secure choice account is tied to the employee and not the employer. We think that that's valuable. Utilizing this model, but if the federal government would allow us to allow for higher savings and for voluntary employer matches, that could be an interesting thing to look at going forward. Right now, I think we take care of those who fall through the cracks. Those who have higher salaries are probably well served by the current private sector. Um, but I think it might be a time to revisit uh, what the federal government allows state plans to do. Mm-hmm. Gonna remind uh, all of our listeners today that we're gonna take questions. So I'm looking for some to come through from Karen. She's gonna slack them to me on the side over here. Um, but Carl, I want to bring you back into this conversation because you know this this is often happens in a retirement conversation when we um, when we kind of focus on we now have two kinds of systems that can cover people, and there's still a whole set of folks who um, there isn't a different kind of solution around. Now, secured choice last last year with uh, with open maps uh, gave an opportunity. Um, I'm guessing for some of the kinds of ways that you are thinking about, pooling and offering and serving a growing uh, number of workers who, who don't have access to either, um, either they're not in Illinois or they're someplace else, they don't have access to those plans. And, and, and I'd love it if you actually talk a little bit about one of the examples of um, when you think about more of the low income uh, contingent and independent work population, um, what are some of the options and, 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 and how do you see this going forward to really scale up access to um, to retirement and to other critical financial security benefits? Uh, I'll do what I can with it and try to respect the, uh, the time limits here. Uh, you know, again, all the solutions we're generally talking about here are by employers, for employees, and um, it's my job to fret about a large population that aren't uh, working for an employer, they're working for themselves in universes of one. Uh, I will say that some of the insurance companies who are participating in, in the seminar today are working with us, are investors in, and are building uh, portable uh, products that can be group rated, even with the, you know even with people not belonging to a single employer or a single occupation. So the insurance industry is cooperating as we. Uh, as we move forward, and some states are uh, beginning to try to help too, because it's not just enough to be able to offer benefits to, um, you know, to the to the non-employee workforce, which again I just keep reminding us is going to be at least as big within a very small number of years as the employee workforce, but you also have to do it in a way that's affordable. 
And so we've been working with states, we've been working with regulatory bodies, we've been working with insurers and others to get to group rated products for people that are intrinsically difficult to group rate and lots of good progress um, you know, being made. The question is who is responsible for education in a non-employer model? Uh, and again, I would urge that we look at platform companies which have a large portion of the independent workers finding their next assignments, their next uh, work possibility through the platform, that we help them engage in a way uh, that makes it possible for them to do underlying support for retirement savings and even more importantly for the education uh, behind that. And again, I, it's important that we talk about deployers of this talent as much as it is as we talk about employers in the old model of um, of, of working. Can you, you know, I, I'd be remiss uh, with my colleague Karen Andres if I didn't ask you to give a specific use case of your partnerships um, if you're willing to share. I think there's some stuff that you're doing with. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. so on one side, we have formed a coalition with uh, people who are participating as independent workers are finding it difficult to gain access to the American Benefit System Coalition for Workforce Innovation. Um, one of the co-leaders of that with the CEO of, of Lyft, uh, working our way through uh, how do we go about providing this type of uh, portable, you know, portable benefit structure. And then working with insurance companies is how do you approach group rated products for people who are intrinsically not members of groups. Uh, and uh, tremendous concern and, and, and active into the people who are most in danger of being left behind, again, are lower income, less educated, people of color, and we're not focusing uh, on their access to uh, these types of retirement planning and, and benefits in a non-employment world. And I ranted on you, so I don't know if I answered That's your okay. core no, question. It's good, and I actually want to ask a question. We, one of our partners is um, Nest Insights in the UK, and you know they have also been thinking hard about independent workers as they expand the ways that they serve. They are a, um, a unique institutional provider. In the US, we provided an, a product for a little while for people who didn't have, uh, at the government level, for people who didn't have an account called MyRA, and that went away at, um, a few years ago. But in the UK, they really thought about, not, not that we need a product, but we need certain institutions to serve the role. Um, uh, if you're going to reduce the role of an employer to facilitating access, and you're gonna expand that to other people. Um, so Nest is an institution that was there to catch the fallout, to catch the folks who were not particularly um, being competed for by the rest of the market in their pensions plans. But interestingly, when they switched to focusing on the small business side of things, they actually uh, have a hypothesis that in order to get people into pensions and long-term savings, they may actually need to couple it with a short-term savings product that's offered first because the issues that come up for people are liquidity issues, are these financial shocks they want to self-insure for. So they're actually trying to imagine how they pair them. And there's there's certainly experiments here in the US too with pairing emergency, short-term and long-term savings. So I'm just wondering if you're seeing that with any of the kinds of um, 
adjacent products uh, that you see the need for in, in, in the population you're working with? Um, I'll, I'll stop there, just wonder about that, and then if other people have a sense of the need for both short and long-term savings and how this might fit together in the long run, would love to hear it. Sure. Ipsy UK, and, uh, there is an Ipsy UK as a sister organization of ours founded a few years before uh, we started and have been doing that type of advocacy and helping um, you know, do a lot of these fixes because the UK is also a country with a larger proportion of uh, independent workers and very familiar. And it's a challenge because one of the biggest threats, again, on the survey data shows to uh, independent workers doing, you know, uh, you know, staying true to the savings is that their savings that they're currently building are almost always immediately available to them. And one of the phrases that keeps popping up in the qualitative research is, well, I can pull it out of my savings account. It's okay because I'm going to be able to replace it uh, with my next assignment or my next, uh, uh, my next gig. So I think these programs, uh, as you were describing, are very important. They've been critical in the UK and will be critical here. Any any comments on that from from you, Nari, or Treasurer Frere? Yeah. Um, so this is an issue that was raised early in the process in the development of CalSavers, which is um, because the target is right the lowest wage workers in California, um, the average um, annual earnings would be around thirty thousand dollars a year, right? So low income workers, and so there um, there. Uh, was and, and still remains some concern and um, needing to actually collect good data on this question, which is when you take automa automated retirement savings of 5% deduction out of workers' paychecks, so we're already at pretty low income levels, what is the impact on debt, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and the fact is that's an empirical question that we need to answer, right, as the program goes on. And, um, and Oregon and Illinois, right, there needs to be some data collection to figure out um, what's actually going on there. And um, so I think so I think there was early on a recognition that this program could serve as right. You could actually add on a sidecar um, for shorter term savings. I will say that um, that in California and Oregon, and I don't know about Illinois, but the first thousand dollars goes into essentially something like a money market fund, right? Something very low risk, so that you're not exposing workers to um, to stock market volatility just as they start launching. And it's a Roth IRA, so the money is you know, theoretically more accessible, but really you don't want to encourage people to dip into the retirement savings. That's for the long haul. Um, so I do think that that it's really been a matter of setting up the state programs and getting them off the ground so that they can just fulfill yeah. the core mission. And then once that happens, I do think that there are some really strong possibilities because um, it would be pretty, I don't want to say easy, but right. Um, you know, it makes sense to tack on a short-term retirement savings product alongside that. Great. Yeah. I, I make comments are not that much different. Uh, by design, Secure Choice tries to provide access to savings when needed. The Roth IRA vehicle was chosen intentionally because we wanted savers to know they could access the dollars penalty-free if they needed to. We don't want them to, uh, but we let them know that. It gives them a sense of confidence to go ahead. You don't have to opt out of this program if you're worried about needing the money. But that's not the same as a separate emergency account, but it's with that liquidity option in mind that we set it up. So we're interested in looking at how an emergency account could be built onto a program like ours, uh, but that's something we want to dive into once we have the program fully up and running. 
So I'm, I'm looking at our time and uh, the questions that are coming in are big picture questions, folks. I'm just going to say we have a we have a lot of folks who are um, you're being inspired to think about the, the system we should be creating for the future. Um, uh, I was just on a call before this today and I talked about how, uh, well, I think it's true in a lot of the survey data we're seeing, but it's also true in terms of how we're all thinking and reflecting on the systems we had pre-COVID, that it's it's looking at where the holes were in our safety net and our retirement system, looking at looking at the ways that the current moment has brought things into such stark relief about what wasn't functioning to begin with. You don't want to just go back to where we were. You know, how do we build back better? And so I guess I'd like to ask, in the context of uh, retirement savings, when you think 10 years out. Um, you know, what are a couple of features of the kind of re retirement savings system we need in this country that we should be thinking about to, to build back better? Um, if you could put things at the top of your list for others listening or for policymakers or for the private sector, what, what would that be? And I just want each of you to kind of conclude with just some, some request. Well, I, I would be remiss, that, first of all, especially with the, um, the populations that we've been talking about um, with, uh, you know, black workers and Latino workers and low-wage workers, um, you need to start out the conversation with, first of all, how do we bolster and shore up social security? Because that really is a bedrock of retirement security for this population. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, both low and middle-income uh, middle workers need other retirement assets, right? Um, because right now we're looking at this big downward mobility in retirement that's coming over the next um, 20 years. So um, I do think that we need, I mean, it would just, uh, we need a set of national standards, right? that you know both kind of a robust sort of, of social insurance system that isn't purely tied to right um the employment relationship um and we also need a set of sort of national standards around like what you know what is the kind of retirement security that everybody needs to have not just if they happen to be lucky enough to stumble into a you know a job or a situation that offers the right kind of plan um so i do think i you know um it would be really great to have some sort of <laughs> federal policy goal, right? That this is, you know, whether it's it's the Australian you're talking model. about an M word. What are you talking about here? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, that right. That that essentially that everybody needs to be in some kind of retirement savings plan, right? And and, and it could be private, it could be employer sponsored, it could be the state, but basically everybody needs to be in one in addition to social security. I I do think that that's something. So an automatic enrollment with potentially yeah. an onus on requiring something something like Treasurer Ferricks might know a bit about in Illinois. And the, when yeah, I said uh, M, I it, was, it was an M word mandate was what I was talking about there. Go ahead. What's your what's your aspiration, Treasurer? Uh, boy, it's it's similar to what Nari just said. Uh, what you added, Ida. Um, I'll be uh, very selfish here and say I'd like to see uh, Illinois Secure Choice uh, Plus adopted at the federal level. I mean, it doesn't have to be Illinois Secure Choice, but something similar to what we've done, that automatic enrollment, uh, that it's uh, opt out for employees. Um, I'd like to see, when we talk about PLUS, um, these programs uh, have higher limits for contributions to allow employers to contribute. That doesn't solve the problem for your gig workers or so, it doesn't allow uh, to, but trying to take some of the benefits from qualified plans and add them what we're doing here in Illinois 
and then really make it national. That's, uh, you know, there are two ways to do that. Well, I'm a member of the National Association of State Treasurers, and we talk with our fellow state treasurers trying to get more states to sign up, but then to lobby DC when we go out there. Uh, but that can be a long-term solution. It can be tough to fight every day for something like that, not knowing if it will happen or it's gonna happen a long time down the road. Um, but I'd like to talk to my staff who's, who's on this phone here and say, let's just have the best program possible here in Illinois. Do the best we can, provide an example for other states, for the federal government. And the hope is they'll look and say, they're doing things right there. Let's follow their example. Thank you. And, and Carl, what's your what's your own sense? Where are you, what are you going to be busy with as you continue to build out your agenda? Well, I need to talk to state treasurers more is one thing I've learned. But I would uh, I, I'm very much interested. I'm very much interested in a workforce that's going to drift back and forth between being an employee and being an independent worker. And I'm interested in us if we're going to build state plans, which I think is great. We're much better shot at that than building a federal plan, but to build it so there's gateways in and out of their work style, uh, you know, so that we end the discrimination. As we talk about all the cool things we can do for employees, let's end that discrimination and say, how can we do it for all the people who are earning income, regardless of whether they're an employee or an independent worker? And how do we create a gateway between? which I've not thought about until listening to this here. What's the gateway? Is there a, is there a way so that uh, as we see more and more movement between shorter and shorter employment durations, more and more willingness to pick up uh, and shift to an independent work, is there a gateway so that we can unify an approach to um, you know, an enhanced retirement savings plan? I don't have a great answer, but I figure that Nari uh, will and uh, Michael will get us to one here shortly. We will. Uh, we'll pick. We'll pick up offline and, and get that going with all of you. Uh, we're we're at time. I want to thank uh, our our listeners, our stakeholders for joining us today and asking questions and tuning in. I want to thank Treasurer Frerix, Nari, Carl Camden for joining me in this conversation. Uh, I want to remind you all that uh, we'll skip a week and we'll be back the first week of July, can you believe it's already July, for a Future of Work conversation that we'll be hosting with our colleagues at the Future of Work Initiative at the Aspen Institute. Uh, and I'm sure I'm supposed to tell you something else from the team, but I've forgotten what it is. So with that, I just really wanna thank everybody and uh, hope you have a, a great Wednesday. Thanks so much, everyone. <laughs>